In 62, Eddie and the cruisers were headed straight for the top. In 64, Eddie drove his Chevy right off a bridge and disappeared. I hadn't died, the cruisers died with him. But even now, 18 years later, they still can't get Eddie out of their heads. And some nights it's like Eddie's still alive. Last night, there was a car sitting in my driveway. A 57 Chevy, just like Eddie's. The music. The power. The legend. Eddie and the Cruisers. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiotta. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners welcome to season three of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a recent finalist in the popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture podcast Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. In this episode of Rock is Lit, my friend Sherry Thomas and I are talking Eddie and the Cruisers, the 1983 cult classic film about a fictional early 1960s rock and roll band on the rise that virtually disappeared from the airwaves after their lead singer, Eddie Wilson, supposedly died in a car wreck following a dispute over the band's experimental second album, which was never released. Almost 20 years passed, and Eddie and the Cruisers are back on the charts, Thanks to a renewed interest in 60s pop culture and music, and a journalist decides to go on a mission to find out what really happened to Eddie and the unreleased album. I should warn listeners that there will be spoilers in this episode, so listen at your own risk. I also want to note that this episode was co-edited by Jerry Danielson. 
I'm thrilled to finally get Sherry Thomas on Rockets Lit. Sherry is a music journalist and hosts music shows on Station Head. I was a guest on her former podcast, Analog Smile, a year or so ago when I was promoting my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. So it's nice to have her on Rockets Lit. I hope you enjoy our conversation about Eddie and the Cruisers. I already gave a very brief synopsis, but here's a little background on the movie. The movie's actually based on a novel of the same title by P.F. Kluga, and I didn't know that until, oh, I don't know, five, six years ago. I think it was published in about 1980, and I've read it, but it's been long enough that I, I don't remember very many specifics, but I do remember it's very different from the film. The novel was not a big success, although it did manage to catch the attention of Martin Davidson, who optioned it, and with Arlene Davidson wrote the screenplay, and then Martin Davidson directed the film. I didn't know that there was a book until recent yeah. until recently, and then I actually just <laughs> purchased it on Kindle because the hardcover and the paperback are a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw Eddie and the Cruisers? Yes, I do. I was young, uh, probably, uh, I want to say 12, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I was in love with Michael Pere because of <laughs> course he was the, the face of the movie. And <laughs> I just <laughs> love a guy that has a, a look of a rebel and, and he fit that profile. And that's, that's what attracted me to the film and the music, of course. Yeah. The film starts out on the dark side. I mean, how better can you get than that? I should tell everybody, Sherry and I are about the same age. We both graduated high school in 1988. So we saw the movie when it first came out, and it wasn't in theaters for very long. As I recall, it was September 1983 that movie hit the theaters. I would have been 13, and I saw it with my mom. And I remember asking some friends if they wanted to go, and nobody wanted to go. Nobody was interested. So it was just mom and me. And I just immediately fell in love with it. It resonated with me because I was into James Dean and The Doors at that point. And this is a couple of years before I got into Led Zeppelin. Like you were just saying, I mean, there was something about Michael Paré as Eddie Wilson that reminded me of both James Dean and Jim Morrison. He just had that, that smoldering bad boy look. Uh, absolutely. I did a rewatch of it recently. And mm -hmm. I have to give you my differing um, opinions on it now. Um, Please do. <laughs> just because I, I think with age, your tastes change and your concept and your idea of uh, film differs as well. Yeah. We're middle-aged now. So going back, and I went back and watched it again the other night. And I'll, I'll be curious to know if your thoughts are 
in line with mine. So what are, what are your feelings now having just rewatched? Well, Tom Berenger is a star and I was attracted to him instantly. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he so cute? Yes. He was so cute. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, Michael Perret still was good looking and charismatic and mysterious, but Tom Berenger, I'm like, man, what was I missing then? <laughs> yeah. He must have done this before the big chill, because I think he really took off after the big chill. And that may have been right after Eddie and the Cruisers. What I found interesting is that Ellen Barkin is uncredited in the movie, and she hated making that movie. She did, just did it for the money. She called it a pay the rent movie. The characters, they're kids in the 60s in the band, and then they're, what, in their 30s, I guess? maybe early 40s, and when it gets to the 80s, there's so much about that movie that's just about regret and your life not turning out the way you'd hoped it would. As somebody who's older now, and I'm not trying to say, oh, my life sucks or anything, but that resonated with me more than anything else. So that was kind of my takeaway at this point. Yes. Another takeaway was the character of Joanne Carlino, who played Eddie's girlfriend and a love interest of the character of Tom Berenger, especially in, um, during the college scene where they go, went back to um, the college. You know, her speaking about her guidance counselor and saying how she wouldn't amount to anything. You know, she was a woman that knew what she wanted, and she was discounted for being someone uh, that was a rebel, mm -hmm. someone that wasn't accepted at that time. Yes. So there's that. And the other thing that goes along with that, I picked up on this time, there's a real class issue in that movie. Social class is a big element between the band and, or the main members of the band, and the Tom Berenger character, Frank, a.k.a. Wordman, because he went to college, and they didn't. They're more blue-collar, and that really comes to a head when they go play that gig at his old school. Eddie really messes with his head on stage at one point. Eddie acts like he's almost threatened by him. So there's that issue that comes up, and you can see it in the way that they dress, like Tom Berenger's all buttoned down, and then when he's playing with the band, he puts on his jean jacket and turns the collar up and wants to kind of have that rebel rock and roll look. And that's not really who he is. Yeah. But in the long run, Eddie, he alluded to him that he needed him more than anything else because he was the words and words and music went together. And that idea permeated the film. I mean, Eddie asked Frank to join the band on keyboards and as a lyricist. Remember that scene when that happens? They're at Tony Mart's, Eddie and the Cruisers, without the Tom Berenger character. He has not joined the band yet. He's just this button-down kid sweeping up the floor in the club. They start rehearsing, and Eddie and Sal, I think Sal played bass, they're arguing over Betty Lou's got a new pair of shoes because Sal wants it to be upbeat and Eddie wants there to be some kind of a pause, which Frank jumps in, the Tom Berenger character, and says, yeah, you need a Cesura, this timely pause. And they realize, Eddie and, and Frank, 
that they need each other, that they go together, words and music, they form the core, the two of them of that band. Absolutely. Wait a minute. What's the matter? What's the matter? Where are you raising it to? Where's the fire? No fire. That's the way the song was written. It goes that way. Upbeat. What's the problem? Uh, the problem is, I'm just saying words. You know, you gotta give me a little room so people know what I'm singing about. Hey, you lose the beat. People miss a step. We want them to dance. Lose the beat. Miss a step. What are you, a moron, Sal? You believe this guy? What's Sal? I like your stuff, but it just ain't what I was looking for. You understand? Forget it. And your mind made up before you even started. So what am I knocking myself out for? Look, I don't want to argue with yourself. You want to get another opinion on the subject? No. Forget it. Joanne, what do you think? What are you asking her for? Why not ask her? She's got a brain. I don't know anything. She knows, huh? Everybody you bring in this band's an expert. Except Sal. Sal's just a dumb git, right? Don't do it. <laughs> hey, kid, come here. Oh, me? Yeah, you, come here. Now, you heard what we're talking about. What do you think? Um, I think he's right. I think it needs a censor. See? My way with a cesarean. A what? Tell him. What's your name? Frank. Tell him, Frankie. Uh, Cesar? That's a timely pause and kind of a strategic silence. That's exactly right. Uh, if you want, I'll give me an example. <clears throat> okay. One evening I took beauty in my arms and I thought her bitter and I insulted her. Sounds like shit, right? Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll, now I'll do it with the Cesar. One evening I took beauty in my arms and I thought her bitter. And I insulted her. Now that's good class. But does that have class, Sally, right? Hey, kid, you can stay. You know, the Sal character, as sad and desperate as he is, there's something very endearing about him (laughs) throughout the movie. And the same with Doc, the guy who was managing them. They're very needy, and they know that they need Eddie in order to make it. And I think that's really endearing, but also desperate, too. Yes. Did you know that Rick Springfield wanted to be Eddie? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes, he wanted to be Eddie and the director didn't want him to. Oh, he would have been a great Eddie. (laughs) Especially at that time. He was Dr. Noah Drake at that time. He would have (laughs) been dreamy in that role. I mean, no disrespecting Michael Paré. Michael Paré was very mysterious, had a a very, like, uh, rebellious look to him and a very small not to say that rick springfield is smoldering and mysterious he's definitely (laughs) smoldering but michael parade just brought a, a certain kind of huskiness to the role exactly rick springfield hot but mysterious not so much for me i think the difference would have been that he had a name 
And maybe the movie upon initial release would have done better because of him in it. But I got to go with Michael Pere. I thought he was perfect for that role. And I don't mean to deviate, but the other role, the only other role I think of when I think of Michael Pere is Streets of Fire. Did you see that? Yes. I have that soundtrack too. I do as well. We have a lot in common. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm a soundtrack movie buff. Especially in the 80s. I mean, you can't deny that the soundtracks of the 80s were were nothing short of spectacular. Yes. I just got to jump to the character of Wendell, who played the saxophone. He was played by Michael, quote, Toons and Toons, who actually played sax in the John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. They did the soundtrack. It was it's funny rewatching it. It was like, Oh, yeah, he doesn't say a word in this movie. But yet he still has such a presence. When I found out later that he was in the band and the director just thought, well, you know, you play sax, we need a sax player. Why don't you just do this? And he was perfect. He was. And the way that he passed away was also very tragic, Mm. too, in in the movie. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. I'm, um, describing the particular. Because in the beginning, you find out that he passed away, but you don't really know the circumstances. Yeah, they say heart attack at 37. That's what we hear at first. And that's what the Tom Berenger character thinks until the drummer says, you know, no, that was bullshit. That's not what happened at all. Here's one of those spoilers I was talking about. He died of, I guess, a heroin overdose is what it looked like to me. Yes, it, it looked like heroin and with a combination of alcohol. Yeah. So another thing about this movie, since we mentioned Jim Morrison, right around the time Eddie and the Cruisers came out, it's interesting that the doors we're seeing a resurgence of popularity too. I mean, the the movie came out in 83 and the book, No One Here Gets Out Alive by Danny Sugarman, Jerry Hopkins came out in 1980. The Doors Greatest Hits came out in, I don't know, it was 80 or 81 and sold like hotcakes. You know, the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side, yeah This is Sherry Thomas and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind 
and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The Doors all of a sudden were popular again, and you've got this singer in Jim Morrison who was this hot, mysterious dude who died suddenly at 27 and under mysterious circumstances, and people were saying he's still alive, which was the deal with Eddie Wilson. So there there are a lot of similarities there between the movie and that situation. I think... That may have been a tie-in to the, you know, like, oh, yeah. I, I think that's um, really what the angle that the screenplay writer thought of and or the producer or director said, okay, let's use The Doors as a cross-reference to, yes. <laughs> to this movie. Yes. My favorite line is from a journalist who's working with the Ellen Barkin character, who is the journalist who's going after the story about you know, what happened to Eddie and what happened to the album that they were recording that never got released. Her fellow journalist, after she tells him she wants to work on this story, says, I get it. Eddie swam away from the car because he he drove his car, supposedly, off a bridge. Eddie swam away from the car, had Jim Morrison waiting for him on shore, and then Amelia Earhart flew them all to Paris where they're all living in sin. All of those pop culture figures that the movie is referencing. Well, maybe not Amelia Earhart, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I remember even growing up as a kid, the Amelia Earhart mystery was still Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. it was still like, where's Amelia Earhart? She's still got to be alive. She's on an island somewhere. Where yeah. is she? We're going to find her. You know, like that stuff really was happening. <laughs> like even yes. even as a kid, like growing up, I remember that, you know, being in my preteens and, and hearing that. They had all those television shows, like Leonard Nimoy had that. Um, in Search Of. Yeah, In Search Of, yeah. Like Bigfoot, like Sasquatch was thing, looking for Sasquatch, and he was in right. someone's backyard all the time. And, <laughs> you know, so definitely at that era, it was, I think, because there wasn't an internet, these rumors and um, speculations were really, I think, a hot topic still. For sure. <laughs> so the character of Doc Robbins, who I gather was the manager of the band. That actor is Joe Pantoliano, and I probably said his name wrong. And he's one of these actors that was everywhere in the 80s. And he was he was terrific in that role. He was. And just like the Sal character, he was desperate mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. He uh, was a DJ after Eddie, quote unquote, passed away under bizarre circumstances or sketchy circumstances. Doc turned out not to be the best guy, but he's also forgiven for not being the best guy. Yeah. Because he was so desperate with Eddie's career. I want to talk about that in a little bit. And that has to do with the ending. But the Sal character, the actor Matthew Lawrence played him. And he's another one who was everywhere in the 80s. He was in St. Elmo's Fire. 
he was the gay neighbor of the Demi Moore character, but nobody knew any of these people when the movie came out. And then we have, let's, we're going to move into the music. Music producer, supervisor for the film was Kenny Vance, who was one of the original members of Jay and the Americans. And I mean, I love that song, Come a Little Bit Closer in This Magic Moment, that, that's Jay and the Americans. What I didn't realize is he also had a, a bit role in the movie. He played Lou Eisen, the 1964 record company executive who refuses to accept the band's second album. Let's talk about that soundtrack. That was one of the reasons that the film eventually did take off. I mean, it wound up going, I think, quadruple platinum. Of course, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, music composed, most, most of the songs, not all of them, but most of them were composed by them. On the dark side, you mentioned earlier, that opens the film and you would hear it on the radio. What are your thoughts about that song? Oh my gosh, what are my thoughts on that song? I, I love it. It's <laughs> just, it's hooky. It's catchy just from the first beat, you know, the... The drums, the yeah. saxophone, everything, the his voice, John Cafferty's voice, it's just the cohesiveness within that band is just amazing. And you could tell from the first note, it's going to be something special. The character Frank, the Tom Berenger character, wrote that song, and it was originally a slow piano piece, and when he played it for the first time for the band at the beach, they're outside, and everybody but Eddie and Joanne laughed. And that is a spectacular scene. I love how they build that song in that scene. Eddie just kind of takes over the music. He hears something in it that they don't. He jazzes it up. He teaches Frank, how to play the piano the way he hears the song, and it becomes this punchy rock and roll song instead of this kind of melancholy piano slow piece. I think that song goes a long way in showing their relationship and how important they were to each other, the words and music. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that song, coupled with Tender Years, formed the backbone of this movie. So those two songs together really crystallized that band and i love tender years so did i and it was a a theme throughout the movie it was in mm -hmm. different scenes in different ways it was it just flowed throughout the whole movie you know even when word man and joanne were walking through the college campus and when they would be in the car driving and the song would come on you know just <laughs> yeah you know the last couple of scenes in the movie also they intertwined it um, rather cleverly throughout the film oh yeah they'd sort of turn it into something a little bit dark at mm -hmm. the end too it takes a turn to your heart's full of fire 
So another song, Run Around Sue, is obviously a, a Dion DiMucci song. He wrote that with Ernie Maresca. So it's not a John Cafferty song. It's not an Eddie and the Cruiser song. But the band in the movie plays it in rehearsals at Tony Mart's before they rehearse the Betty Lou song when Frank gets involved. So I love that scene, too, because it just sort of shows them at their playful best. They're just having a rock and roll good time. Definitely. It kind of re- reminded me a little bit of Elvis when he would rehearse for his Las Vegas shows. I don't know if, if you've ever seen the documentary about him getting ready for his Vegas premiere, but there were weeks of rehearsal. Yeah, the, this is Elvis, I think mm-hmm. is what it's called. Yeah, yeah I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, and it was just, it kind of reminded me a little bit of that in a way, because Elvis would riff and the band would play and they would laugh and have a good time just among themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we have that segue into Betty Lou's got a new pair of shoes. And we already talked about the Cesar a bit and how Frank got into the band because of that song. What makes me laugh every time I watch it is when years later in the early 80s, the band's broken up, of course, but Sal has put together a tribute band. And he's the only original member, but he calls it Eddie and the Cruisers, featuring Sal Amato, because that's what he always wanted anyway. He wanted to be the featured player. And he finally plays that song the way he wants to in some, I guess, Jersey boardwalk hotel kind of, you know, hokey place. I think it was a Holiday Inn. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's right. The Holiday Inn presents. Right. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. the thing that I really loved about it was Frank was standing in the back of the room at the bar and he just chuckled like, oh, this is the way that he Mm -hmm. wanted it to be played. And he's finally doing it. Like, good for you, buddy, you know? And, you know, the other thing is, is that the dynamic between the Ellen Barkin character and Frank, I thought watching it as a grown up, like even a few days ago, I'm like, I'm surprised they didn't hook up because it was just like so, so much like <laughs> smolder in between the two characters. I thought, hey, that would have been like a really interesting twist. Do you remember when he first meets her? He's an English teacher. And she comes into his classroom and she pulls off her scarf and takes off her coat and just sits on top of his desk and crosses her legs and then kind of leans forward. I was like, whoa, okay. (laughs) That's um, not exactly professional, but all right. That's not a way that a journalist normally acts. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just coming from a music journalist standpoint. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was just an interesting um, introduction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And like I said, seeing it now, it's surprising that they didn't take that little plot twist and, and run with it. But aren't you glad they didn't? Yeah, I am too. I am glad that they didn't. 
I'm glad that they um, kept some of Frank's innocence left in him, you know, because I, I think he really loved Joanne. Yeah. There is something very innocent about Frank that never changes, which is nice. It is nice. <laughs> Where can I find someone like Frank? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that looks like Frank, too. Yeah, really. <laughs> hey, lit listeners. If you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your podcast platform of choice. Help this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels continue to build momentum. The way to do that, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to subscribe, like, and rate the show. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you'll get yourself some good karma. Links to Apple Podcasts and Good Pods in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. We mentioned regret earlier. There seems to be so much regret with him. There are several times in the movie where somebody, I think it was Doc, asked him, did you ever write that book? And then Sal says, I thought you'd go off to Hollywood and write screenplays. They thought, and I probably Frank thought, that he was going to go off and do something literary. And it just never happened. There's so much with these characters that, well, here's what I'm doing. It's not what I thought I would be doing, but what if, and all of that kind of thing. And he he definitely seems to keep trying to connect with all the the members of the band, trying to find out what they're all doing and and wondering what would have happened had Eddie lived. Right. What if Eddie hadn't had that accident happen? What if they did finally release the second album. What if, you know, there are a whole bunch of, of what ifs. And yeah. that is really, I think, endearing to Frank too. Yeah. Um, because sometimes you just want to hold on to that thing that made you feel so good or made you feel alive. Yeah. Well, moving on to the song Wild Summer Nights. This also relates to Sal's tribute band performance at the Holiday Inn, but also to Eddie and the Cruisers' performance at Tony Mart's. And I love how they meshed the flashback, well, what's going on at the Holiday Inn, and they mesh that with the flashback. It's a, it's a seamless segue. Sal does this kind of intro to that, this kind of funny little, you know, kind of talking, just trying to connect with the audience and sets them up for what that song is about and how it really takes you back to your youth. And then he counts it off. And then the scene shifts almost 20 years ago to Tony Martz and Andy and the Cruisers are playing that song. And that's just a rocking, great, fun summer song. Yeah. It's kind of like the kind of song that you would, you know, put down your windows and convertible if you had one and just ride with that song blaring and the wind going through your hair kind of song. Yes. It reminds me of that Eagle song, Heartache Tonight, because it just has that that summer, you know, the radio is going to play that song. It's got that kind of sentiment to it. It does. It's a lot of fun.
Okay, I'll tell you two songs that I don't like on the soundtrack. And that's Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes and Down on My Knees. They took me out of the 60s. They sound much more 80s. The band plays that when they play the college that Frank used to attend. And we have that awkward moment on stage where Eddie's introducing everybody. And he it really kind of picks on Frank a little bit. I can appreciate the fact that they do have an 80s sound because the whole thing with the band Eddie and the cruisers in the movie is that they were supposed to have been ahead of their time. So that's why it fits. I just am not as crazy about those those two songs as I am the others. I would say Down on My Knees is more of my style as far as the two are concerned, putting those two together. I love the sound of Down on My Knees. I don't know, maybe because it does have the forward-thinking kind of attitude that Eddie and the cruisers had, you know, of Yeah. But Down on My Knees is a favorite, but the other one not so much. I, I just didn't get a feel for that one at all. Yeah. I mean it's a good song, but it wasn't it didn't stick with me as much as the other ones. One song left that I want to talk about on the soundtrack is, of course, Season in Hell. It's the the titular song for their album, their second album, that no one wanted to put out, or the record execs, that is, didn't want to put out. They made it in, I don't, I guess it was 64 yet, because Eddie died, supposedly died in 64. You have this whole scene, the band is listening to the playback of the song Season in Hell. And nobody gets it. You can see it on everybody's face. And Sal tells Eddie he's wrong to be upset that the record exec doesn't want to put it out. I remember Sal says to him, they want on the dark side. When are we giving them some damn opera? I don't know what what you're even after. And, And Eddie, this is the kicker. Eddie tells him he wants something great. He wants something that's never been done before. And Sal says, why? We ain't great. We're just some guys from Jersey. Like, Ouch, that's the worst thing he could have said to somebody like Eddie. Mm-hmm. And Eddie says, if we can't be great, there's no sense in never playing music again. So that's the end of that for him. Yeah. He wanted to put something out that blew people's minds, that yeah. that pushed him to the limits. <laughs> yes. Oh, I agree completely. He didn't want to just do on the dark side. He wanted to do, as he said, something great, something nothing nobody's ever done before. And in 1964... Of course, this is a fictional situation, but in the movie in 1964, nobody was playing anything like A Season in Hell. And when you listen to it and you can hear it's got that, I mean, I'm, I'm not a musician I don't, and I'm not a, a music technician producer, so I don't know what the effects are, but there are these effects that it really sounds kind of spooky and there's just something complex and dark and much more mature than what they had been doing that the world wasn't ready for yet. I think that it's 
the same for artists like The Doors. I don't think anyone knew what to do with Jim Morrison, yeah. to be quite honest, because, and, you know, this, the same mm. goes with Raymond Zarek and the rest of the band. It was just something that was completely out of the left field. And I think that goes for, like, Frank Zappa, too. What do you do with Frank Zappa, you know? Like, yes. He's he's <laughs> this musical genius who puts out, like, these weird songs, but they're artistically amazing. Let's get to what happens with Eddie. He storms out of that recording studio. He goes to a very interesting place, and Joanne runs after him and gets in the car with him. He takes her to this place called Palace Depression, which I just found out actually is a real place in Vineland, New Jersey. It's this big junkyard with assorted junk artistically arranged that opened after this guy lost his savings in the stock market in the crash of 29. I don't know if you can still go there. And I don't know if it was based on that in the book or the movie or whatever, but there is an actual place like that. I think that's one of the most fascinating scenes in the movie when he takes her there. It's so poignant. He takes her there and Joanne there and he says, I used to hang out here when I was a kid. And he says, the owner used to believe you could build a castle out of a bunch of junk. And Eddie says, you know, I'm in the, basically he says, I'm in the right place with all the junk creating a monument to nothing. And it's like, you get, okay, he's over the edge now. That moment in the studio sent him over the edge. And it's after that, I think he takes her back to the studio and she gets out of the car and he hugs her and off he goes. And that's the end of him. If you've not seen the movie, that's what happens. He, in quotes, air quotes, goes off the bridge and supposedly dies, but they never found the body. And then the master tapes to the album that they had been making, which was called Season in Hell, disappear. So we have this whole situation where if you don't have a body, of course, that is going to perpetuate the rumors that maybe Eddie is alive, which is what Ellen Barkin is playing with. Yes. And... Just going back to that scene at the palace, it's very like foreboding. Mm -hmm. And the last scene with him and Joanne, that's also very foreboding because she kind of knows like he's going somewhere and she doesn't know where, but she's letting him go. Yeah. She knows that it's going to be the last time that she sees him. Yeah. But Frank and Joanne return to Palace Depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was kind of expecting him to be there. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the, the items that were there to be there. I was expecting him to be there. And oh, wow. I, I mean, younger and as an adult, I'm like, wait, wouldn't that be cool if he was like living there the whole time? Uh, I hadn't considered that. That's interesting. <laughs> Just because he knew this place, it gave him a, a feeling of out of trash can come beauty, even though it doesn't seem like that. I think that's what in his brain, his fantasy that something could be made out of nothing. And yet at the end, he feels differently about it. He's had this experience, this he's been deflated in the recording studio and he goes back there and now all he sees is junk. He sees this pretentious display of junk that thought it was something but isn't. And it's, that is a, a wonderful motif that they use that I think you just articulated really well in that I hadn't really thought about, oh, that's how he thought of it before. 
because all I was doing was thinking of him being there at the end and realizing or thinking to himself that he's nothing. He's just junk. His work is junk and it will never amount. He'll never amount to anything. So why bother? Hi, this is Wadi Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Joanne went back to the recording studio after she found out Eddie, supposedly, more air quotes, died and took the master recording of their album, Season in Hell, and she hid it at Palace Depression. Okay, you said when they went back, you were expecting him to be there. That never occurred to me. What I was thinking watching it the other day is, how in the hell does she remember where that is? With all that stuff around, how does she remember where she put that? I mean, maybe she's been visiting, you know, like a gravesite. Maybe she's been visiting it through the years, but that did seem a little interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is someone looming in the background following them around, driving a car that was very much like the car that Eddie was driving the day that he supposedly passed away and, you know, has been calling people and also trashing their apartments and homes to look for these tapes. Could it be Eddie is alive? Yeah, there's that question. Is is Eddie contacting Joanne? They apparently had this little phone signal that he would call and it would ring once and he'd hang up and call again. Or he'd drive into the driveway, flash the lights, turn them off, flash them again. They had these signals. And somebody who knows about that, could be Eddie, could be somebody else, is trying to get her attention by using their history and what they used to do to connect. The reception of the film when it first came out was not good. It was a critical and commercial flop, and actually Rotten Tomatoes still rates it around 38%. Roger Ebert, at the time it came out, gave the film two out of four stars, And he wrote, despite a good cast, terrific music, and an intriguing concept, the ending is so frustrating, so dumb, so unsatisfactory, that it gives a bad reputation to the whole movie. So let's talk about that ending that he thinks is frustrating and dumb. Okay. We know that somebody, as we just said, 
is trying to make contact with Joanne. And it's it's to get those tapes. It's to get those the master tapes. And it turns out that it's Doc. Now, watching it again, did you have a different impression of the ending than you did when you first saw it? Did you think it it worked? Did it not work? What do you think? Okay, well, when I first saw it, I was young, so I really didn't understand the concept. So, I, you know, it really didn't make much sense to me. Mm -hmm. As an adult, however, I got it. I got the ending, and I thought the ending was well done. I think, like I mentioned before, Doc needed Eddie in order to succeed. And he still needed him, even as he grew older. He still needed him in order to become successful. And I think Frank and Joanne saw that too. They knew it. The Doc character just kind of was this desperate guy. Even up until the very end, he was Mm -hmm. this broken man that needed something in order to feel important. Joanne tells him at the end, you know what Eddie used to say about you? He'd say, Doc is a dreamer and the world needs dreamers. And then she gives him those master tapes so that he can go off and make a deal and bring out the record. And Doc wanted to be a part of that. There was apparently a movie in the works about Eddie and the Cruisers. He wanted to be a part of that. I get all that. I guess my feeling is I think they let him off easy. Joanne and Frank, you know, he'd been kind of torturing people, ransacking people's houses and the calls that he made to Joanne and the the car thing that he did and tricking her into coming out to the car. And I just thought, wait a minute, he got off pretty easily. Somebody should have kicked his ass first before they gave him the tapes. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's Yeah, they did life a little bit of hell before they gave him yeah. a, a sleeping hell, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with that part. I think I probably would have kicked him a couple of places, but <laughs> And then giving them the tapes, you know, like, here, you sorry, piece of mm-hmm. whatever, and <laughs> and then let him go. Yeah. And I'll tell you the other thing that got all over me about the ending. So we have this love triangle between Eddie, Joanne, and Frank. And there's that class issue again. I think Joanne's got feelings for both of these guys. So twenty, almost 20 years later, Eddie is supposedly dead. She reunites with with Frank and invites him back to her house and there's a there's some chemistry there between those two characters there's some chemistry and she's got pictures framed pictures all over her walls of Frank and Eddie and her with them and there's just kind of a very you sense the closeness that they had is still there and boy all it takes to send her running back to more air quotes Eddie is when she gets the phone call supposedly from Eddie and she's offering, sorry, Frank, gotta go. Got Eddie's, Eddie's coming. I'm going to go upstairs and get ready. Gotta go. So she's ready to dump him and go back with Eddie. Then when they discover it's doc and they give doc the tapes and doc drives away in this kind of triumphant moment, then she says to Frank, let's go inside. And I thought like, hell, you just were going to dump me for Eddie. 
<laughs> so I'm supposed to go inside like nothing ever happened. Those are my two issues looking at it as an adult. But you know what? I think Joanne is torn. And I think Frank knows that. Yeah. And I think Frank was torn also because he loved Eddie too. Yeah. And he knew that Joanne was Eddie's girl. And you saw that there was the scene at at the college where Frank kisses Joanne mm. and Eddie's observing. And they kind of know that Eddie's observing too. Like that was the weird part. I think Frank was in love with Eddie as much as Joanne was in love with Eddie in, in a different way. That's a good point. Of course, but there was this dynamic between the three of them that was like really weird. But I, I think Frank knew that Joanne was always going to be Eddie's girl, no matter the circumstances. And he was fine with it, but he was also fine with being with her. I think he always knew that he was second. Yeah. Let's flash on the last scene. So Ellen Barkin, because Doc gets the tapes, they give Doc the tapes. She gets her, her TV special where she gets to play Season in Hell, their album. And she gets to do that whole documentary. And that last scene, there's a bunch of people on the street watching through a window. It's like a TV store. And there, there are a whole bunch of TVs and, and the, the show is playing and these people are watching it. And at the end, they all turn away and there's this one dude and we see his face and he's got tears in his eyes and he's smiling. He looks wistful and you know damn well that's Eddie. That's who it is. And he's thinking, finally, they understood what I was going for. And then he just walks away. It's a great ending. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and there is an Eddie in the Cruisers too, mm -hmm. which I have never seen. Have you seen it? Girlfriend, I have seen it, and I needed therapy afterwards. It was so bad. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well. <laughs> it was so bad. The author of the original novel called the sequel, quote, a talent-free embarrassment. He liked the original movie, but the sequel and the same director from Eddie and the Cruisers is not involved in the sequel. It's like they offered it to him, and he was like, nah. So they got somebody else, and it took until 1989. I have the DVD of Eddie and the Cruisers and the sequel. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> well, okay, then I don't feel that bad for not watching it. No, I think you should watch it because, like me, you're a fan of Eddie and the Cruisers. I think you should take a shot of something and just watch it <laughs> and see it through. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'll have to give it a, a shot then. I think you should. You know, because you know, if I felt the pain, I, I want my friend to feel it too. We need to have that in common. <laughs> okay. All right. Why do you think it became a cult classic? And why do you think we're still talking about it now? I think the general public has a better understanding of film sometimes than movie critics do. Just like music. I think, you know, when music sometimes is critically panned and the public gets a hold of it, they're wild about it. Okay, for example, Wham. I loved yeah. Wham. And so did millions of other people. But the critics slammed them for being like this goofy band talking about 
Club Tropicana and, and doing the Wham rap. But it was endearing. People got it. They, you know, it had a beat. It was catchy. Andrew Ridgely and George Michael were handsome men who like to have a good time on stage and off stage as well, probably. <laughs> and, you know, they were just appealing. And I think that's the way that the movie was too. Purple Rain, for example. I mean, that was a, that was a hit, Ugh. but it became even bigger after the fact when it came out on, on yeah. uh, VHS and DVD and digital and it was on HBO. It just got, kept growing and growing and growing. And I think the music was a big part of it too. I mean, like I said, yeah. the beginning. It starts out right from the get-go with On the Dark Side, which was a huge hit also. So I think that was part of the appeal of it as well, because they knew, everyone knew the song. So, you know, they, and they knew where it was attached to. So I think that that was a big part of it too. And, and this was the time, of course, when MTV was really big too. So you saw Eddie and the Cruisers singing On the Dark Side. So. You kind of correlated the yes. two together and everything was basically engulfed in the video era. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was all about the music and the video. And I, I think those two combined made a hit after the fact. I think another thing the film has going for it that appeals to people even now is that it's a mystery. It's a period piece. It's a music movie. It's a coming of age story. It's a, it's a biopic of a fictional band. There's a lot going on in that movie. I know that people our age still love the movie. What I don't know is if it's caught on with younger people. I mean, what's the nostalgia now? What's the period that people are nostalgic about? Because it tends to be a 20-year gap. And in the early 80s, it would have been the 60s. In the 90s, it would have been the 70s. But from what I'm seeing, like Daisy Jones in the 6s, it's still the 70s. I think... Now, a lot of kids, their focus is mainly like the 90s. If you're going to talk retro, they're talking 90s. Okay. And so I think within the next few years, you're going to see a lot more in in the form of biopics with like Kurt Cobain and Chris Cornell. Yeah. I think that it's going to, or Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon. I think those doc, those uh, biopics will start to come out soon. Eddie and the Cruisers is still a cult classic, but I think it's probably primarily for people around our age. Mm -hmm. I wonder how it would be received by a younger audience, and maybe we'll find out one day. you enjoyed this episode of Rock is Lit on Eddie and the Cruisers. Thanks to my friend Sherry Thomas for joining me. Check out Sherry's show on Station Head. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can follow her on Station Head. You can also find her on Twitter at SherryT1970 and on Instagram at ReadCoffeeRepeat. Stay tuned for more great episodes of Rock is Lit coming soon. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock! is lit.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.